You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're really wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't have this glorious podcast. Uh. <laughs> I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alex Rowland, and this is episode 15, Potpourri. Listeners, we are all tired. It's the holiday season. We're beat. I've been walking all day today. I am in New York City. And I think we're all sort of in the mood to have like a a fun times, not too much thinking sort of episode. Yes, except we're going to end up thinking anyway. So this is a fool's errand. Indeed, we will end up overthinking. We promise. We promise that with every episode. A full dose of overthinking. That's our brand. <laughs> but we're but we're going to have fun doing it. Damn right yes, we are. Yes, indeed. We're answering some listener questions today, and we got um, three wonderful listener questions. Um, but before we do that, um, may I make a brief announcement? I, I think you need to make a brief announcement. You must make a brief announcement, since your announcement is the reason why you're so tired. <laughs> well, yes, that is part of the reason why I'm so tired, um, both today in the short term and like this whole month in the long term. Uh, I have a new book coming out next year. Uh, it was just announced on Twitter last week for those of us living in real time, which is now while we're recording the podcast. It will have been a couple weeks uh, ago for those of you living in fake time, which is the time when people actually listen to this episode. <laughs> um, it's called Finding Fairies, and it is a non-fiction encyclopedia of where to find fairies in the modern world and specifically urban environments and uh, it's going to be a lot about um, environmentalism and climate change and um, sort of how technology has changed fairy life. I say non-fiction but I want you to hear the air quotes like it's fiction (laughs) obviously it's fiction but it's also in a kind of nonfiction mode. And yeah, I'm really excited for people to read it, but it is very exhausting to be writing it right now. I'm on a very tight deadline. So every I'm just like a feral swamp creature these days, dear listeners. Uh, that's where I'm at. But I am so excited for this because it reminds me a lot of this book that I read all the freaking time when I was a kid, which was sort of the same thing, but with gnomes. But it was this sort of like sociological, anthropological examination of like the gnomes' life and and yeah. like everything about it. And it was I, I read that so many times. It was delightful. It was bizarrely Nordic, and and so this project that you're doing sounds like it's of the same vein. So I'm super excited. <laughs> And this explains a little bit why Marshall Ryan Maresca is the way he is. Just yes. a tiny bit of yes. early influence. And and Alexandra Roland, you get to be that influence on, on a future. On some other future small child mind. Yes, small wonderful. one out there. Wonderful. I mean, it's basically like it absolutely is like entirely my sort of shit, right? Because it's basically just 100% world building. All the time, always. But yeah, writing in that like very academic, restrained, um, uh, nonfiction mode, that voice, 
uh, is difficult and time-consuming and sort of disheartening because I can only do like 300 words at a time rather than my usual MO, which is to like sneeze and 20,000 words falls out in three days. Um, but I have no characters, I have no plot, I have no dialogue, which are my real strengths with a book. So it's definitely something that is, you know, challenging me to stretch my capabilities and not rely so much on the things that I know I'm good at. So yes, that will be coming out next October. So keep your eyes out for that. Very excited for this. All right. So shall we launch into our first listener question? Yes, let's do that thing. Fantastic. So um, Alex, uh, listener Alex, not um, currently recording with us, Alex, asks, in your books, your books, how much world building was done before finding the story or was the reverse done and world building elements created to tell the story that you wanted? This is so it's a, a chicken or the egg question, everyone. <laughs> so this is a really great question because uh, for me, it was definitely the chicken. The world building came first. Um, I started coming up with the world that conspiracy and choir and every fiction project that I have conceived for the foreseeable future is all set in the same world. Uh, and I started coming up with this world because um, it was my very last semester of college. Uh, I was going through some really, really bad shit in my personal life. And the uh, books that I was writing at the time, I wasn't interested in them. I didn't care about them. They were making me unhappy. And so I was like, you know what? World building is the most fun part. How about I just do some fun world building for no reason uh, and like not have it be for anything. It's just going to be purely for funsies. And I, I won't have it be for a project. I won't do anything with it. Uh, I won't have it be for any project. And then I spent like three months just sort of noodling around and coming up with things because that was the fun part. And then eventually, inevitably, I looked at this heap of work that I'd done and been and I was like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if I could use this for a project. I started wondering how could you write a book with the maximum amount of world building in it possible without overburdening the reader and making it so that the world building was like burdensome and taxing on them. And I was like, well, you'll need a storyteller to sort of talk about it and someone who has traveled the world and, and seen a lot of things. And that was how conspiracy started taking shape. How about you guys? Very cool. So... I have a question for you, Alex, actually, before moving on, because okay. that was such a unique way of coming to a story. Um, and I think it's something we've kind of talked about before, but like what percentage of all of that chunk of work that you did do you think ended up in Choir of Lies and Conspiracy of Truth? Um, it's hard to say because it's sort of like an ongoing process, right? Like I definitely have not built the whole world yet. Like there are still huge, huge swaths and chunks of the world that I have not filled in. Um, I have most of the countries named. Uh, maybe I have about for 75% of them, I have like a rough kind of visual idea of like the aesthetic that I would have for that country. Um, but I haven't done any deep world building for most of them. Or if I have, it's just like one or two offhanded remarks um, that someone made about them in passing. And that's kind of a great way to do world building because I think a, the downfall that a lot of inexperienced writers uh, fall prey to is that they spend all this time coming up with all these great ideas and then they want to put all of them in the book. 
and you don't need all of them in the book. You can elide most of them and leave some of them out and use negative space uh, because negative space is your friend and will do the majority of the work for you if you can utilize it correctly. Um, so a lot of it was just, it's like the iceberg theory, right? Like 90% of the iceberg is underneath the water and you never see it. And I think that's kind of what this was. Um, like there's things that I have come up with in this world which have not yet been mentioned, but I have them in the back of my head. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that people so often remark about my books, that the world building feels so deep and and tangible, like you can get your hands on it, because I have done the work to support the foundations of it uh, before I just started like coming up with like little noodly ideas here and there. Very cool. Marshall Ryan Maresca, what about you? Well, for the Maridane books, I definitely did the world building work before I ever actually started writing any of them. So for me, it was not quite the same place as Alex's came from, but it was the same sort of like I was at that point, I was far more focused on role playing games than actual writing. And so I was like, I need to. Get, make myself a more concrete setting for role-playing games was the initial impulse mm. where I first drew, drew the map and then came up with sort of like the rough sketch of what each part of the world was going to be like and build it from there. And I kept, it was one of those things I kept fiddling and fiddling and fiddling with. And then this friend of a friend reached out to me where... He was planning on starting a role-playing game company. And he had, and at the time, I was completely ignorant of, like, so many things. He's like, I've got 100 ISBNs that I need to use. That's, you know, so I'll be publishing stuff with that. I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds neat. Whatever, whatever that means. <laughs> so not having any clue what that actually meant. So that in publishing role-playing books, he wanted something to be the core setting for these for the system he was creating he's like and from what i've heard from from our mutual friend you've got something that's kind of neat so let's have it be that but you need to do a lot more work so i really buckled down and did a ton of world building work to that end mm. and then having all that he was like well we also should have like the equivalent of you know stories or whatever that are set in the world to like set tone and all that so I started working on some things that I had envisioned as longer pieces but never quite came together and doing the history work and stuff like that and things based on that. But it was all, you know, a mess of like little false start stuff and things like that. And then once I really had that world building work fully done, I was like, okay, no, I need to like... I need to start really being serious about the writing thing and write and write a book. So I started to write, I planned out and started to write the first of a series that was totally that travel log series of I've done all the world building. So I'm going to write a book where the point is to go from one part of the world to another. Yeah, to buddy. Show, yep, you did. You did it. <laughs> I only wrote one book of that. It is deeply in the trunk where it belongs. <laughs> But part of when I was then like 
trying to workshop that book and figure out like okay what's the problem with it i'm like the problem with it is it has no plot because the plot yep, is yep. i want to go from point a to point b to point c and nothing else <laughs> so that's when i started i wanted to drill down like okay let's instead of showing the whole world let's focus on one part of it and find the stories within that and that's how i then centered on just the the capital city of meridane and then worked out this enormous thing in my head of what the whole story of the city could be and then broke that into separate parts and then the separate parts became separate series and here we are in the midst of my madness as it currently exists yeah <laughs> and they definitely have plots now they definitely have plots. They do. Yes, I... I can I can endorse that. Yeah. They definitely have so, very very exciting good plots. So when you say travelogue, um, tell me a little bit more about that because one of the first sort of tactics that I tried to do with conspiracy was also like a travel diary or a travel guide rather, like someone who had gone around and was like specifically giving advice to um, future readers who might want to do the same thing that he had. So was yours like that, or what were you so, doing? Mine, my main character was, he was a linguist and a historian. Okay, a chant. Got, of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> who basically got forced to go on this mission that he did not want to do of being the, being the translator on a ship where the ship was just, its mission was to circumnavigate the globe and visit all the different countries. And then uh -huh. over the course of that, he would you know get into various troubles and make you know end up solving certain problems and my and given that i wrote i started this in the early the early 2000s when this was probably would not have been a viable project then it's probably a more viable project now than it would have been in 2002 when i started writing it but be, because like there if you had a hero who would never pick up a sword nobody would be would want you to, to nobody would want to publish that book in 2002 right. but i think now it would be a far more viable thing but still it has no plot but it, <laughs> <laughs> but that was the idea was that it would be basically you know like star trek but in fantasy where they're just you know their mission is just to go to each country and and open up some degree of diplomatic talk with every with every nation as they as they go from place to place cool Rowena how about you so I a little different I think because really the concept of both the story and the world kind of blarfed out together when I I kind of came up with the idea um because I the first germ of an idea that I had for writing the Unravel Kingdom series um was just this question of I was researching of course I was 18th century clothing and particularly these particular <laughs> kinds of jackets these caraco jackets and there's all different kinds of them and variations on the style and I realized there's this explosion of style in caraco jackets right around the same time that the French Revolution is really brewing up and I just kind of thought like how strange that these two things exist side by side you have major political upheaval and gorgeous fashion happening side by side and what if the people creating this fashion could have some kind of influence on what was happening um, on a larger political sphere um, so that was kind of like the little like germ of an idea that I had. So, so the world and the story were kind of entangled together from the get go. And I also um, had pretty firmly a roots of the, the world in 
the 18th century, late 18th century France and um, late 18th century Britain with actually some ancient Rome thrown in there. It's not really visible from the surface, um, but a lot of the magic stuff kind of comes from 18th century, from um, ancient Roman um, beliefs and concepts. Mm. So I had a lot of historical stuff kind of pastiched together to begin with that was kind of the framework. Um, so a lot of that kind of just happened for me with having this idea for a story. And then so like the big picture was kind of there, but then there was a lot of sliding in important, but within the storyline detail, world building elements, um, like exactly how the nobility titling system worked. That was something that I did not have like ready made when I started writing the story that was something I had to kind of figure out along the way, like exactly how did succession work and things like that. Yeah. Um, neighboring countries, I kind of had to play with a little bit more as I developed the story um, because that wasn't something that was part of the initial little germ of a concept that I started with. Yeah. So, but a lot of it happened in tandem because I would kind of have this, you know, like little branch into a world building, you know, thing I needed to get into and then I'd be like oh well well that could also lead into this plot thing that needs to happen and so it was it really wasn't create one and fill in the other it was really in tandem yeah feeding off of each other like some kind of um amorphous garbage beast that that just kind of came out of my brain cool cool so Marshall I have sort of a question tangent from this since you and I both have this thing of like making up a whole world and then playing in like a sandbox do you notice yourself building like once you have sort of the foundational world do you ever do more world building than based on a plot that you have that you want to do like does it ever sort of in smaller like less global scale things go the other way where you have a plot and then you do the world building to support it to a degree like there there's definitely things where because i want things to go a certain way i then I'm like okay i need to take this world building aspect and open it up to figure out more about it mm-hmm. um in like one example is in import of intrigue which is which is the book in Meridane, which is my excuse to like show some of the larger world world building without having to go into the larger world because it's it's mostly set in the part of the city that it's these little foreign enclaves mm. of you know of people from other parts of the world. So I got to use that as a way to not only highlight those different cultures from other parts of the world, but also delve into those points of interaction and contention between the diff- between the, the cultures and how, how that plays out. So that was an instance where the plot that I wanted to do gave me the reason to, to delve in deeper with certain things that I hadn't delved in yet. Yeah, and I think that like one particular thing you said is is super important in and like a great way to hack it and and expand your world building without doing, like without overburdening the reader as well which is to just show people who come from different places right like i have read so many fantasy books where it is so homogenous not just in terms of 
race, obviously, because like people like fantasy is so white. Fantasy is so, so white. And we're starting to see some uh, improvement of it now, but there's still a really long way to go. Um, But also just showing people coming from different places and people whose parents or grandparents immigrated from different places and now they live here and they're from here and they've always been from here and but they're going to have a different a slightly different perspective on the situation than um someone who's whose family has lived here for generations and generations you know like just showing a more diverse spectrum of thought and as well as humanity does so much to make your world feel bigger and richer and and wider and so like yeah like having a foreign quarter in the city where like all the the like a little china or or my brain is difficult it's bad take it take the podcast away from me (laughs) interrupt me say something no but no i i alex you're absolutely right right. and that was something that um i really dealt with a lot when i was um kind of developing um the framework for torn was that my main character is an immigrant Mm -hmm. and so like to what degree do i show where she came from to what degree does she identify as the majority culture where's that in between there and i think that it it was um was not an intended way for me to like think, oh, this is going to be a world building trick, but it absolutely worked that way to show a wider um, world than I would have if I had made her of the majority culture. And I think that's something we talk about a lot here on this podcast is just keeping in mind the fact that humans are not static. And Mm -hmm. even if you don't have a super modern world, you still have trade and contact and interaction and it's a global world unless you've made a very distinct and deliberate choice to make it not a global world and I think that that's something that um when we get into that question of are you choosing that or presuming it it's accidentally presumed often that non-super modern societies are not global except but they most are societies are global yeah I mean yeah. we have such history as a global situation um and also that humans are a giant moving mass of of people they move around they move their cultures around they add things to their cultures they abandon things and we just you know there's there's no point that i can think of except for really specific historical moments that humans are static yes I can and think so keeping that as part of it. I can think of two amazing examples, which uh, historical examples to support your point. Uh, one of which was uh, in uh, Byzantium, the Varangian Guard for the Byzantine Emperor. Those were Vikings. Those were just Vikings who came from the Viking lands all the way to. Istanbul, not Constantinople. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Nobody's business but the Turks. Alex. Nobody's business but the Turks. Um, and the second example, actually, this one also involves Vikings, is that we have found, um, I believe, sapphires from uh, East Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, in Viking um, archaeological digs. Which shows that there was a global trade network even that far back. Like, to get a sapphire from Southeast Asia all the way to the other end of the continent, we don't know how long it took, but it shows that there was, like, trade and people 
passing things along like a a very very long game of telephone um (laughs) and it probably didn't come straight there from uh its origin um it probably took a long long time but the amazing thing that it came that far and ended up somewhere in the ground is just like really weird and, and strange to think about but yeah keep that in mind for world building yes I feel like this would be a really good place to segue into our next question. Yes, I think so. Um, Because it kind of starts to deal with some of these themes. Um, Banana Lord asked us, how do you feel about including real world prejudice, such as, but not exclusive to, racism, sexism, homophobia, um, in fantasy worlds? So full escapism, where none of that exists, something grittier, more power fantasy-ish, where all that exists and the characters have to overcome it, somewhere in between. So I think we kind of joked before the episode started, we could probably do an entire episode and more on this question. Yes. But I think we can start to get some ideas, at least flowing on the questions that we would ask ourselves. Yes, for sure. So how do I feel about including these real world prejudices? For one thing, I feel very cautious, especially about how I engage with the prejudices that do not affect me directly. I am white, I am female presenting, I am a queer person, I am non-binary, and so I am much more comfortable tackling queer phobia than I would be tackling racism, especially fantasy racism for like, oh no, like we're prejudiced against elves or whatever, which is... (laughs) Oh, we have talked about this, the fantasy racist thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really big, complicated question I don't think that I would be able to ever have a single sort of rule for myself because every book is going to be different and every situation is going to be different. It's the sort of thing which you have to handle very carefully and sort of take it on its own terms and look because there's nuance, right? Like nuance is everything and you have to look at what you are doing for the thing that's right in front of you before you can make conclusions about what is the right thing to do here, right? Yes. Well, and I think that question of how do you feel about it, um, do you do you write full escapism or do you mm. write something grittier and more of an overcoming story? I think it all depends on what kind of a story do you want to tell. Yeah. And both of those kinds of stories are valid, and I think that both of them are important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it is important to see representation of overcoming and it's also important to see representation in which something is just accepted. Yep. So, you know, I think that that's something to be very conscious of when you're making decisions about both the story you're telling and the world that you're building to support whatever story that it is that you're telling. What kind of a story am I telling? Am I telling one to escape into and leave behind some of the nastier prejudices that this world dishes out? Mm-hmm. Or am I telling something that is an empowering story about overcoming something similar to or analogous to some of those prejudices? And I think both are totally valid. Um, As a queer person, I am mostly not interested in writing about queer phobia. So all of my stories so far and all the worlds that I have built are just like, yeah, it's fine. Because I don't want to write about people being mean to people because of something that is so personal to me. Like, I want to live in a world where people like me can be accepted. And so I just write uh, stories where it's just normal, you know, and nobody gives a shit and it's not a factor. 
And because I want, you're absolutely right. And I 1000% agree with you about both sorts of stories being important. I think that showing the fight and showing how people overcome it is so, so important, as you said. And it's also, I'm just agreeing with you. I'm just restating exactly the thing that you said, and I am sorry about it. But like, No, you are not. You is, are definitely adding another layer so, of nuance here. It is so valuable to show people what comes after the fight and to show people yes. the world that we yes. could have if people were just not assholes to each other in this particular way. Because they're always going to find new ways to be assholes to each other, right. right? Like, if you take away a certain kind of prejudice, there's always going to be other kinds of prejudice to tackle. I am much more interested in writing about class prejudice than I am about queer phobia sort of prejudice. And, you know, I think, too, that there is... I, I like that um, this question asked this somewhere in between, because one of my favorite kinds of stories, both to read and write, are the kind of, like, not necessarily rising up in force and having a giant revolution of thought, but, like, mm -hmm. how do I kind of engage my agency within a crap system? And I think that those can be such exciting stories in a way, because... A situation can kind of look like, well, nothing's going to change here, but those small acts of agency can really make a difference yes. over time and overall. And so I am um, in my book <laughs> example, um, but I had, I wrote two characters who are in a same-sex relationship, and I had written a world where that just doesn't work. It's so based on primogenitor and you have to have heirs and the nobility cares about this crap. And so having these characters be able to kind of quietly subvert that in their own way um, was was kind of like a nice little way to like write a noink in there. Mm -hmm. And the same with um, like my protagonist, who's it's a very it's a very gender based society. Women do one thing, men do another. But for her to kind of like take certain, you know, how do I want to say that? Um, starting over. I guess for her to um, dive after agency in particular ways, and they might not be really flashy or big ways, um, but to to really kind of exert what agency she does have, I think that at least for me, there are often times where I'm kind of like that. That's almost more exciting for me when I'm reading than someone who has a big overcoming moment mm -hmm. because we don't always feel like we have that in our real lives that's but we all those true. moments of like oh oh i i i found my little way of fighting back and i'm going to do it that is very very true marshall you have any thoughts on this oh i have so many thoughts which of course should be taken with an enormous grain of salt because <laughs> on every single privilege vertice I'm I'm of the privileged class. I mean, literally every single one. So we won't. But I know personally, I'm more interested in writing worlds that are messy in terms of how people are mean to each other, without me being mean in the text itself. If that makes sense, I, I'm far more interested in writing those kinds of stories but at the same time i'm very aware that 
plenty of readers are either both not interested in writing those kinds of stories and not interested in reading those kinds of stories because as many friends of mine have said, like I don't, you know, I'm reading these books to escape, not to get punched in the face. And I understand and respect that. That is a very valid concern. But I definitely think also that these those sorts of sort things are can be very important to include. And I, I'm the thing I'm writing right now, which is my this diesel punk thing, is loaded with with uh, issues that are based on class and based on race, and it's going to be like I, I've basically laid out a minefield for me to dance through in terms of how this book could come out. I could mess up deeply and i'm doing the <laughs> i mean i am doing the the sensitivity reader work and the and the research and such to get it right hopefully but there is plenty of potential for me to screw this up and i'm hoping not to but i'm i'm and i'm definitely aware of where a lot of the minds are but it's because i think it's an important kind of story to write but i think all the on all levels, it's important to write stories about people struggling with this, but it's also important to write the stories where the struggle has been won and we don't, and what that nicer world can look like. Yeah. And I think, too, um, one, one thing that drives me bats is when books are criticized for being unrealistic, for including a lack of racism or a lack of sexism or a lack of homophobia or whatever um in a fantasy world and that that all just comes down to did you do the work world building because yes there there are things that are going to rub up against each other and not work very well mm -hmm. um if you have a society that you know you've built a world in which men are elevated in some kind of way and have all the power privilege and every um, kind of power role and money and land are all inherited through a male heir. And then you want to write no gender disparity in other things. It gets, it gets a little weird. But good writers don't do that. And so I think it's all about creating a cohesive world that works. And, and you can absolutely do that. It, I think it is one of those sorts of choose versus presume sorts of moments where people presume like, okay, I just want, I want to do like a fantasy that's, that is Renaissance Europe, but without X, Y, and Z, without doing the dig down work to make the without X, Y, yeah. and Z work. They just right. mm -hmm. cross it out. Because, you know, there, there are things that are just, you know, domino effects of change. And yeah. if you change this one little thing, well, what else in the society just fans out from that one change? And I think digging into the history um, of a lot of our modern expressions of racism and sexism and ableism can be really helpful. Um, there are some really excellent books, for example, on the history of racism in America and how in a lot of ways the slave trade and the institution of slavery developed our version of racism. Like it didn't go the other way around. We didn't invent slavery because we were racist. We kind of invented racism because we wanted to have slavery. Yeah. And so I think that getting into the where did this crap come from in your world is really important. And, and asking those hard questions of like, okay, so do they just not like people for some random reason or did they want something out of this does this benefit someone because so many of our systems of oppression it, it benefits someone else so who is that 
and I think that that's where a lot of a lot of that kind of comes to a head in world building. And I think it's also important to be aware that humans are really, really good at, hey, those people on the other side of the hill are slightly different from us and therefore they are terrible and we hate them. And, you know, we're, we can also be really good at overcoming that. You need to do the work to show why people don't hate the people over in Shelbyville just as much as, as you, <laughs> you need to show, do the work of why you're, I mean, and if, if you design your world in a way that these things just don't exist, that's fine. It's, I think that's especially, it's easy to do that, I think, relatively easy to build worlds where, where sexism or, or prejudice against sexuality doesn't exist if you're doing a good deep dive secondary world build because you can just say, hey, if there's no Christianity, and then there's not going to be these certain things building up within, within the framework of society. Yeah. Your thoughts, Alex? I, I do have a thought. And my thought is that, okay, so I want you to imagine a spectrum going from negative 10 to positive 10. If okay. you have a prejudice in your society, let's say that that is set at negative five, and you say, I want to write a situation where this does not exist, taking it to zero is not good enough. You have to take it to positive five. There has to be something in its, in its place to take up the space that the reader would notice because the reader is coming into the work with a set of presumptions. And so if you just ignore it, they're going to assume that it's still there. They're going to presume that it's still there. So if you want to show this thing does not exist, you have to build it in positively. So for yes. example... You have to say you have something. To say, you can't just assume right. that they're going to guess at what you're going at. You can't just show there's no homophobia by having no gay people. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you can't just say, oh, yeah, there, no one is homophobic in, in my book. Like, it's never mentioned. No one. You can't just say homophobia doesn't exist in the world. And then exactly not show any gay people, not show any just like casual queerness around in the way that the society is built. You have to take it to like a positive two, a positive three, a positive six, take it all the way to a positive 10, show it and show that this does not exist yes. in a concrete and real sort of way. Exactly. I actually just was just revising a project that I'm working on and I had had a system in which in this particular culture within the world, there's kind of a martial marriage that two men can be married, but they're also like battle partners. Mm -hmm. And I realized I never like overtly said it. And I'm reading through it. And again, I was like, Oh, my God, you could read over that. And never realized that I was like, I was saying they have a partnership. But no, I really mean they basically have a marriage. Yeah. And so I revised that section because I was like, well, that needs to be clear because a reader coming in with presumptions is not going to necessarily read that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like how sometimes in a book, a character will be so subtly black, for example, that when they make a movie out of it, they change that character so that they're not black anymore. And then everybody's really upset about it. And some people are like, oh, I didn't notice that they were like, 
okay, you can just come out, you can make it more clear, you can show your diversity and your representation so that nobody can miss it. Or that the text does have it, and then in when the movie adaptation comes out and the character is black, you have people losing their damn minds because they didn't read it that way. Right, right. Right. They didn't read that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It can go both ways. So so it's not just about eliminating it. It's about building something new in its place. Yes. Did we have any other thoughts about that? I feel like we have about 90 bajillion thoughts, but maybe yeah. we should put a pin in them and talk about this more later. Yes, because Banana this Lord... This legit could be a full episode just on this, <laughs> this topic. And... It, yeah. And it probably will be eventually. Just, just you all. Wait. Yes, um, I mean we we kind of touch on this fairly often. Like we we bring this up in in our two big rules of of world building are choose, don't presume, and don't, presume. don't be a fucking racist. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes, print them out, tack tack them up above your computer. Everyone. My short version is: it's important to do, but do it smartly. Go sign up for one of the writing the other courses. Yes. Get you know. Yes. Get some get some knowledge in your brain, and and hopefully that will help you screw up yeah. less, or at least prepare you for when you do screw up. Or or screw up better. And you know, like, and as as someone who is, you know, as you know, as Marshall said, you know, people who are relatively privileged, like, yeah, be willing to screw up and admit that you screw up, mm-hmm. like, that's. Yeah, that's kind of a thing we have to have to accept and deal with. Yeah, the learning process is ongoing and never ending. And for those of us who are living with quite a lot of privilege, it's something that is going to take our whole lives. Like this is not a project that we ever get to finish. This is something that is ongoing forever, for always. Yay. Hooray. This, Which like that sounds like I'm being sarcastic, except like I'm actually not like what a cool thing it is to have a lifelong project in making the world better in this very small, tiny way of like keeping your mind open and keeping your heart open to the opportunity to learn and grow as a person. So that's all my thoughts there. And and on that note, um, shall we move on to our our final listener question? Yes, which is also, also from, Banana, from Lord. Banana Lord. Yes, two wonderful questions what? from Banana Lord. Thank you. They really are. <laughs> What's the most purely self indulgent? I'm including this because fuck you, I want to thing you've ever put into one of your books. Ugh, ugh, babes, <laughs> babes. Let me tell you about my most recent <laughs> manuscript which i just finished a couple months ago which it like the the unofficial title on twitter is uh the tropetastic uh shamelessly self-indulgent tropetastic book of my heart which has everything <laughs> and the kitchen sink of everything i like best in a book um i decided that i wanted to write about my favorite trope of all time which is a sort of romance arc between a feudal lord and one of his loyal retainers. And after that, I just started stuffing more and more delightful tropes into it. Some of them are very small. Some of them are more overarching. And I, the great thing about writing something that gives you so much sheer incandescent joy is that I don't know if this book is ever going to sell. If it doesn't, I'm okay with that because I have already gotten so much enrichment and fulfillment just from the experience of writing it. And it has made me so, so happy. And I really recommend everyone do this because it's great. 
I don't want to talk about it too much because because <laughs> like, the book might get published. Like I can't yeah. give everything away right now because that's kind of the nature of the beast. But like, yeah, I've talked like I everything I've just told you is stuff that I've already mentioned on Twitter in the last two years, so it's fine. <laughs> okay, I just because I I don't know the depth and breadth of this project, Alex. Will you will you just give us like a couple of world building teasers about it beyond what you've already given us? Sure. Like, so uh, where does this take place? It takes place in a setting which I have mentioned in Conspiracy Inquire already called Arashd, and it is the richest country in the world. Uh, because they have this vast trading empire. Uh, it's sort of based on fantasy Turkey, um, specifically like the fa- fantasy Ottomans. And mm-hmm. they have absolutely badass shipbuilding technology and the one of the best economies in the world, uh, as I said. And uh, the fineness of their currency, uh, the pureness of, of the metal that in which they make their coins has not changed in generations because they have a certain sort of magic, which if they touch a metal, they know what it is. That's the extent of the magic system. Just if they touch the metal, they know what sort of metal it is, which sounds very like small scale. And I was like, I just want this to be very, a very, very tiny 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 uh magic system except once you <laughs> oh actually... no 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> because even that tiny little thing of touch a metal know what sort of metal it is has huge rippling implications uh which uh yeah sort of fucked it up but like you can adjust that by saying like oh well it not everybody has has this kind of sense and not everyone who has the sense is particularly good at it um like how some people have better eyesight than others. So, yeah, that's uh is is that sufficient for you, Rowena? Did you want yes, did you want more? Yes, than that? I <laughs> no, that is that's a wonderful teaser. Yes. I appreciate yes. that. Thank there you. There you go. So, <laughs> coin fineness and economics and uh shipbuilding technology and uh fantasy ottomans. Cool. And it's real gay. It's real gay, friends. <laughs> In other words, it's an Alex Rowland book. It's an Alex Rowland book. <laughs> Economics and queer people. How about you okay. guys? So, <clears throat> of what's purely the most self-indulgent, I'm putting this in, that I put in any of the books, on a world-building level, would have to be in Imposters of Aventil. To, get, to give a rough idea, in Imposters of Aventil, the, the backdrop of that book is there is a intercollegiate olympics going on so there's all sorts of sporting events happening and the college is overwhelmed with athletes from every single school and so there's also like a lot of parties and a lot of other things going on while this event is happening because that's what happens when you have a bunch of young hyper athletic people all in the same place and Mm-hmm. At one point, the main characters discover that there is going to be this illegal underground game of crown ball played between some of the some of the athletes from the different schools because crown ball is illegal because nobody because it's been banned because it's too dangerous of a game and so but of course they have to go because they think if they go there they're going to find out where like the drug dealers are because. Surely, if there's an underground illegal game of crown ball going on, there's also going to be drug dealers there because that just makes sense. So the game of crown ball is played in the pool in the bathhouses. 
where the game, they throw a couple of balls into the water that float, and then a couple of crowns, which are coins, into the water. And then all the players jump in the water and swim down to the bottom, and you have to find one of the coins on the bottom, come up for air, and announce that you have found a crown, and then grab a ball. And if you have both a crown and ball in your hand, then you score a point. And but like once once you've announced okay. you have a crown, anything can happen to you because they can just tackle you and drown you or whatever. This is an absurd game. The entire reason this game exists is because of one night where I and my cousins were all at this hotel in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, where we had a bunch of coins and a pool, and we were just <laughs> broke into the pool at midnight. <laughs> I knew it was going to go there. I knew it was going to go there. And so we just sort of invented this game, which was just an excuse to basically attempt to murder each other in the pool. (laughs) (laughs) With some, you know, trappings of sports rules. Because my three cousins are, unlike me, hyper-athletic and hyper-competitive. My cousin Eddie can make Scrabble into a contact sport. We invented this game that night when we were, you know, at this pool in this, you know, cabin lodge in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. And it has always sort of, like, stayed with us as this legend of this thing we did when we broke into the pool at midnight at this cabin lodge. Because <laughs> when we were, at one point when we were about to go, my uncle had, like, picked up the woman who actually was, like, in charge of the pool, but who wasn't actually a lifeguard. And she's like, I don't think that's a good idea. And my cousin Eddie's like, okay, how many of us here are actually certified lifeguards? Five of us? Okay, we're going. That changes things. (laughs) That changes. Like, everyone was a certified lifeguard but me. So, but so. But you didn't die. I didn't die. No, but I was like, how can I stick this into my fantasy world? And I'm like, ooh. But if I make it this illegal, we're not allowed to do this, but we're going to do this. We're going to break into the pools and do this sort of game. Then, then yeah, that'll be kind of fun. So that was that was a fun, utterly indulgent thing to write that that I did just because just because that's what that I wanted is to adorable. do. Adorable, Rowena. How about I you? I mean, in some ways, I kind of feel like the entire world is sort of self-indulgent because it's all of my dorky research interests like mm-hmm. culminating into one that's true that's one true. thing i did so i could just leave it at that but um there was this trend in the late 18th century for women to make writing habits or have writing habits made to match their husband's military uniforms and they look sharp like they're like they've got the like they look so sharp. They do. They and look they're, so they're, fucking they're sharp. British uniform uniforms turned writing habits, so they're like scarlet red, and they've got the, the the facings. Like, think of women in tuxedos. Yes, yes. Like women in tuxedos. It's so sharp. Is how and in sharp fact, this we looks. um yeah. fun fact, um I believe it is in uh, the U.S. State House and the diplomatic rooms. There, Mrs. Frances Montresor by John Singleton Copley is hanging, and she's wearing one of these. Look her up because it's gorgeous. It's so sharp. Anyway, I was like, my main character has to have one of these because I am not patient to sew all those buttonholes for myself. Um, so I've done it before for a man's coat, and I'm not doing it for mine. So <laughs> it's buttonholes and they're, and they're are like the three devil. inch long buttonholes. They're they're god awful. In silk twist, they're, fu- they're the God, fucking devil buttonholes. We hate. We hate <laughs> so buttonholes. I was like, my my fantasy character can have one because I don't have to sew those buttonholes. 
But to get there, I had to have a military so... uniform and it had to have contrasting cuffs and body. So I had to write all of that like into the story in order to get to the point that she was going to have the the <laughs> like matching the the army um um writing habit that she ends up making for herself. Incredible. Well done. A legend. And and it ends up being a major plot point in the book is getting the cloth to do this. So so there you go for a writing habit. That's awesome. So dear listeners, this is uh we these three questions that we had were absolutely amazing. Um, if you have any other questions that you would like us to answer in the future, please feel free to send them to us at our email address, which is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. How about we just say, like, we don't really know when we'll do the next one, but we'll do it when we have, like, enough questions to make a full episode out of. Because we don't set ourselves to a set schedule because... Because doing things every 10 episodes is a presumption. It's it a presumption. It Base 10 is a you're presumption. Making fun of me because, you're making fun of me because of my other <laughs> podcast, I see. <laughs> I see. I see how it is. This is, this is a personal attack against Alex. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you enjoyed this episode, if you would like to uh, hear more sort of us talking about listener questions or if you have ideas for, for episodes that you would like to hear about, uh, please send them to us. We love your questions and comments. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for these questions and I definitely look forward to more like this in the future. And of course, when we say as many questions as we need to fill up an episode, like clearly one question will get us going for a really long time so i'm excited to see where we go with this we even cut ourselves off with the second question we're like okay we're gonna stop and move on we we need to shut up now (laughs) but yes and you know what it is this is hey having a podcast means that you never need to shut up (laughs) this is true so so welcome to 2020 world builders and masochists and we will have lots of fun in the next year i am sure fingers crossed Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on January 22nd. We're talking about politics and systems of governance. This is going to be a thinky one, folks, so just uh, be ready for that. Uh, We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. Uh, We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and as previously mentioned, our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. I don't really have a cool themed fact of the day for you because we gave you a bunch of them already. Uh, So how about I ask you a question, dear listeners? What sort of setting or time period are you dying to see someone writing about in science fiction and fantasy literature? Uh, Tell us on Twitter or in the Discord chat. 